Last week we began looking together at the book of 1 Samuel. And we said this is a book about people looking for a leader. But what we saw last week was that this book filled with kings and warriors began with a childless woman called Hannah. We saw last week a suffering lady taking her suffering to God. She asked God for a son, and God gave her a son. She called him Samuel, and she gave him back to God. She took him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And our passage this morning begins with a prayer that Hannah prayed on that occasion. We're going to look together at 1 Samuel chapter 2. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, that's page 272. And in the large print Bibles, it's page 417. As I said, it begins with a prayer. And Hannah may have poured out this prayer on the spot. Or she may have carefully composed it ahead of time. Either way, it's a prayer of praise and confidence in God. We'll begin by reading together verses 1 to 10. If you want to follow along. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken. But those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food. But those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children. But she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants. But the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Lord Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. In chapter 1, we heard Hannah asking God for help. Her prayer here is really a song of praise. Last week we saw Hannah turn to God in her suffering. And now we discover why she turned to him. She turned to him because she knows what he's like. This is why it's so important to learn the truth about God. If we only have vague ideas about him, 
we are never going to have confidence in him. But the clearer our view of God, the more we'll trust him. Hannah is a lady who knows God well. And in this song of praise, she shows us the God we're dealing with. First of all, she knows he is her source of strength. Verse 1 says, In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies. Literally, my mouth is wide over my enemies. What Hannah is doing is she's picturing herself like a wild animal. Like an animal that has gored its enemy with its horn, and now it stands over the enemy, mouth open, ready to tear it to pieces. And we might think, well, that's a bit over the top, isn't it? I mean, she's celebrating having a baby. But Hannah is not a half-hearted lady. Last week we saw her praying in deep anguish. Now she's praising God with great exuberance. She knows the God she's dealing with can provide the strength for anything she might face. No trial and no enemy is too much for him. And so she says in verse 2, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. One writer sums up verse 2 like this. Nowhere will you find goodness as perfect as the holiness of the Lord. Nowhere will you find safety as sure as our God provides. Why would we put our hope, our confidence in anything else? All other ground is sinking sand. You and I need to learn this truth today so that tomorrow when the storm comes, we'll know who to lean on. We'll know who we can trust. The reason Hannah turned to God back in chapter 1 in her deep anguish was because she knew this truth about God. So don't wait until the middle of your crisis and then try to figure out what God is like. Get this truth into your heart now, then you'll know where to turn in the crisis. Hannah is not being over the top at all. Considering the God she's talking about, she has every reason to be as exuberant as this. His goodness is perfect. And his safety is sure. And he knows everything. Look at verse 3. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. Nothing is hidden from him. And then Hannah tells us more about God's power. She tells us he can bring down the strong and lift up the weak. Life and death are in his hands. The whole world is in his hands. At the end of verse 8. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. And so at the end of verse 9. It is not by strength that one prevails. 
Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now you and I might not raise an eyebrow when we hear verse 10. But if we'd been standing around Shiloh when Hannah prayed this, we would have done more than just raise an eyebrow. We might have fallen over. Because at this time, Israel has no king. In fact, it has never had a king. Now, in the book of Judges, there were a couple of attempts at crowning a king. But it never came to anything. So Hannah is speaking prophetically here. She has been given insight into God's future plans. He has plans for a king. And you'll notice the prayer ends exactly the way it started. One of God's people is pictured as a conquering animal, raising its horn triumphantly in the air. At the start, Hannah pictured herself that way. God had given her success. And here, she prophesies success for God's king. He will succeed in the work God gives him to do. This is the God you and I are dealing with. He is all good, all knowing, and all powerful. And in the light of this, in the light of what we have heard about this God, there are really only two ways to live. We can defy this all good, all knowing, and all powerful God. Or we can be faithful to him. There is no third option. We defy him or we are faithful to him. Now we might think there is another option, but the rest of chapter 2 will assure us there are only two ways to live. And to show us this, the chapter presents us with two stories. The story of Eli and his family and the story of Hannah and her family. We'll take them one at a time, although they're woven together. First of all, Eli and his family. Last week, chapter 1 told us Eli's two sons were priests of the Lord at Shiloh. Now, there was an official retirement age for priests, and Eli himself is long past that retirement age. That means his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have the responsibility of leading Israel in worship. Their job is to teach Israel about God. And they're to represent the people in God's presence. At this point in time, if you're looking for leadership in Israel, you would look first to Shiloh and the priests at Shiloh. And when we realize that, it makes verse 12 all the more shocking. Look what verse 12 says. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Literally, they did not know the Lord. That doesn't mean they'd never heard of him. It means they might as well never have heard of him. The truths that we've just heard from Hannah are not making a blind bit of difference to their lives. 
And then the text shows us how that played out. Look at verse 13. Now, it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would say, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young man was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. What's going on? Well, God, when he set up the priesthood in Israel, he had said the priests were to serve the people full time. But of course, the priests still needed to eat. And God made sure that they would be provided for. They were to receive a share of the offerings that the people brought to God. Their food would come from the animals that were sacrificed. And the details were set out very clearly in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So knowing that then, if the sacrificial meat is supposed to provide for the priests, what are Eli's sons doing wrong? Well, God had allocated them a portion of the meat. But they send their servant to grab as much as he can. In fact, it seems he's trying to harpoon the whole lot. Don't think of him sticking a dinner fork into the cauldron. This is more like a toasting fork you would use on a campfire. This servant is fishing in there for the whole topside or whatever's in there. And God's law also said, whatever happened to the rest of the meat, the fat was to be offered first. It was to be burnt on the altar as an offering to God. Now today, we might throw the fat away. But in Old Testament times, it was considered to be the best part. And the point was, God gets the best because he is worthy. That was the symbolism of the whole thing. But Eli's sons are demanding the meat with the fat still on it. So not only are they taking more than they've been allocated, they are taking what belongs to God. And what all this amounts to is defiance of God. Eli's sons are not serving God. They're serving themselves. And they're treating God with contempt. And these are the men supposed to be leading Israel in worship. And that's not all Eli's sons are up to. Look down to verse 22. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is another name for the place of worship at Shiloh. 
The women mentioned here may have been employed to keep the tent clean and tidy. But Eli's sons are treating them like temple prostitutes. That's what the nations around Israel did at their pagan places of worship. It all amounts to this. Eli's sons are serving themselves. They're taking advantage of those they're supposed to be serving. And it's all happening because they have no regard for the Lord. One writer says, corruption will be found wherever God is not honored. Once you start living with no regard for God, then if you want something, why wouldn't you do it? Why wouldn't you reach out and take it? If we don't acknowledge God's authority, then we make our own rules. And somehow, our own rules always involve us getting to do what we want. And notice here, you don't have to be an atheist to live like an atheist. Eli's sons are the religious leaders of Israel. They're still going through the religious motions. It seems they're still officiating at the ceremonies. I don't think they would have denied God's existence. But they're not living under his authority. They're living as if he doesn't exist. And that's really no different from atheism. What this means is, church attenders can be living in defiance of God. Church members can be living like God doesn't exist. Church leaders can lead in a way that defies God's word. Being connected to a church does not prove you're honoring God. When you or I make our decisions in life and the bottom line is what I want, then we are living in defiance of God. Now, I understand we are not robots. We are human beings and each of us has things that we long for. We have hopes and dreams and ambitions. And that is healthy, it's normal. But those hopes and dreams and ambitions must be placed under God's authority. His word must have the last word in our lives. Otherwise, we can be as religious as we like. We can sing all of the songs. We can help at all of the activities every night of the week. But the reality is we have no regard for the Lord. Not really. When what he says conflicts with what we want, we do what we want. Let's ask ourselves, when was the last time I wanted something, but out of regard for the Lord, I did not do what I wanted? because it conflicted with God's word. 
Does God's word have the last word in my life? Or am I sitting here in quiet defiance of God? Back at Shiloh, Eli knows what his sons are doing. And look what he says to them in verse 23. Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. These verses tell us that defiance will end in destruction. In verse 25, Eli's point is, if you get on the wrong side of another human being, then you can call on God's help. But if you get on the wrong side of God, then who can you turn to? There's no one higher you can call on to plead your case. Get on the wrong side of God and you're sunk. And the truth of this is shown right here in the second half of verse 25. Eli's sons, we've seen, have shown no regard for the Lord. We've seen that they've been living lives that defy him. And so, they are sunk. Their father, Eli, certainly isn't able to fix things. God hardens their hearts against their father's warning. They don't listen to Eli. At the beginning of chapter 2, Hannah pointed us to the God we're dealing with. He is all good, all-knowing, and all-powerful. Those who oppose him will be broken. And we've heard how Eli's sons have been using and abusing the people they're meant to be leading. Instead of guiding Israel into obedience to God, they have been leading the charge into disobedience. They're evil men. And God is too good to sweep their evil aside. Evil and sin matter. And God will show that they matter. Defiance, in the end, will end in destruction. Verse 27 tells us God sends an unnamed prophet to speak to Eli. He's simply called a man of God. And this man of God passes on God's message. He reminds Eli that long ago, God had chosen one of Eli's ancestors to be the head of the priestly family. God reminds Eli he made laws to provide well for the priests. God reminds Eli what priests are supposed to do. And then God says that Eli is guilty along with his sons. Eli shows us that sometimes we can despise God by what we don't do. There's no evidence Eli was directly participating in his son's sin. But he's largely turned a blind eye to it. 
And apparently he has grown fat on the proceeds from it. Look at verse 29. God says through the prophet, Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me? By fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. Eli cannot make his sons honor God but he could have fought for them to be disciplined. He could have refused to benefit from what they stole from God. Eli's life may have seemed above reproach, but for all his religious talk and religious behavior, he was not honoring God. He was getting fat on other people's sin. Defiance of God can be a very subtle thing. We can defy him by ignoring the sin that's going on around us. Even while we're keeping our own lives squeaky clean on the surface. And so through this visiting prophet, God goes on to tell Eli his family line are going to be cut off from the priesthood. His two sons, we're told, His sons Hophni and Phinehas are going to die on the same day. Eli's family have despised God. Despite all their religious activity, they have despised God. And they will be disdained by God. They will be destroyed for their sin. Earlier I said this passage is about two ways to live. And in this chapter, woven together with the story of Eli's family, we find the story of Hannah's family. And the message of this story is that faithfulness will flourish. Look back in your Bible to verse 18. After verse 17 has told us Eli's sons are treating the Lord's offering with contempt, verse 18 says... But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. We've seen that Shiloh is being run like a cross between a brothel and an all-you-can-eat buffet. But in the midst of that abusive, undisciplined mess, amazingly, one young boy is faithfully serving the Lord. Samuel is not a priest, but is the only one doing what a priest is supposed to do. 
Last week we learned that Hannah gave him to the Lord, so now he lives at Shiloh. And once a year his parents join him there to worship. The place of worship is not what it should be, but this is a faithful family. Last week we noticed that Hannah's name means grace. We looked last week at a certain part of her life story and we asked, where is God's grace to Hannah? She's childless. And we're told very clearly it was the Lord who had made her childless. And yet, when we see the whole course of Hannah's life, we do see grace. Apparently, she only asked God for one child. And then she gave him away. But after Samuel, God gives her other children. And the application is not that God is going to give everyone children. The application is don't judge God's grace by looking at just one part of your life. It's only when we finally stand in his presence and look back over our whole lives Only then will we see that every step of our lives was grace. Only then will we see that God never dealt us a single bad card. Even the hard things led us into his grace. I know that it's easy for me to stand here and say that to all of you. I can't possibly know what you've been through or what you're going through. But this isn't my message. Romans chapter 8 promises us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. William Cooper was a man who knew all about dark, dark times. But he wrote this. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Don't judge God's goodness to you just by looking at yesterday or even today. Trust him and stay faithful to him. Faithfulness may not seem to be causing you to flourish, but it will. Hannah continues to be faithful, and so does Samuel. Look down to verse 26. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Even as the sin at Shiloh seems to be spiraling out of control, this young man stays faithful. And God is watching. Maybe his faithfulness seemed to be making no difference on earth. But it is noticed in heaven. 
And when you and I truly see God for who he is, when we see him the way Hannah saw him, when we grasp the truths of Hannah's prayer, then we know that faithfulness is the only way to live. Yes, it is hard when God is being despised and defied all around us. It's hard when you're the only Christian at school or at work or in your family. It's hard when your life seems to consist of one hard knock after another. The Bible never tells us faithfulness will be the easy option. But when we know the God we're dealing with, can't you see that it's crazy to live any other way? If he's the only rock in this world, the only secure thing, if death and life are in his hands, if those who oppose him will be broken, if he guards the feet of his faithful ones, then there is only one way to live. In faithfulness to him. But maybe you hear this and you're thinking, well, that's great. And I believe it, I really do. But I'm rubbish at being faithful. I've let God down so many times. My life is full of unfaithfulness. If you're thinking that, then thank God. Don't thank him for your sin, but thank him for making you aware of your sin. And then look down to the end of our passage. In verse 35. After the man of God tells Eli what's going to happen to his sons, he says this in verse 35. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so that I can have food to eat. Verse 36 is repeating the promise that the priesthood is going to be taken away from Eli's descendants. God says that some of them may eventually earn their keep by doing some religious duties. But this faithful priest God is going to raise up, he won't be a descendant of Eli. So who is God talking about? Well, after all that we've heard about Samuel, we might think it's him. But although he grows up serving at Shiloh, and although he does some priestly things, Samuel never becomes a priest. If we read on in our Bibles, we would discover that eventually Solomon will give the priesthood to a man called Zadok. If you've ever watched a royal wedding, you will have heard a piece of music called Zadok the Priest. You might not know that you've heard it, but you have. And yet today... That's probably Zadok's only claim to fame. His descendants are not serving as priests today. So who is God talking about here? 
Who is the faithful priest who will do according to what is in God's heart and mind? Well, about a thousand years after this, Jesus Christ made a very bold claim. He spoke about God as his Father, and he said, I always do what pleases him. And later, the book of Hebrews calls Jesus a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Faithfulness is the only way to live. We dare not defy this God we're dealing with. We must pursue faithfulness. But we will always fall short. All of us. Our only hope is to put our trust in the faithful priest God has provided. Part of the priest's work was to represent the people to God. And Jesus came and he lived a faithful life in our place before God. Then he died the death of an unfaithful sinner in our place before God. And when we trust in Jesus' priestly work, God sees us as faithful. He sees our sins as paid for. And by his Holy Spirit, he will work in us to make us faithful. We're going to respond to God's word as we sing together. First of all, I come by the blood. And then Jesus, all for Jesus.